This podcast is brought to you by the new term at fxphd.com. We have a fantastic lineup of new courses this term, including Nuke, Moto, Maya Bifrost, Touch Designer, Cinema 4D, Houdini, and a bunch more. Check them all out at fxphd.com. Hi, and welcome to this week's VFX show. I'm Mike Seymour. Joining me on the line as we discuss the flood, the end of the world, the, or rather, I should say, just the beginning of it, uh, Noah, is in fact Matt Wallen. How are you, Matt? Oh, I'm great. I'm having a, a blast here. We're coming to the end of our uh, academic year here at uh, in uh, Richmond, Virginia, and uh, I'm super excited and looking forward to the summer, and I'm really excited to talk about uh, this movie. And uh, Ty Ribbon, how are you, Ty? I'm doing well as well, and I'm, I'm just probably five miles from Professor Wallen here in Richmond, Virginia, <laughs> and also very excited to speak about this film. Now, this VFX show was, of course, inspired by the film Noah, and I just want to say that while artistic license may be taken, we believe that this uh, review adequately uh, represents the essence and values and the integrity of the entire cornerstone of the uh, film and the filmmaker's faith in making it. Um, and, of course, I'm, I'm parroting there the uh, artistic license um, sort of statement that was put up at the front of the film by Paramount, actually uh, not not against the director's wishes, but certainly not based on the director's request. Um, and and uh, I guess that's the, the sort of point that I'd like to start the review before we get into the visual effects, which is the artistic license and the relationship between this and, of course, the biblical story of Noah that can be found in the book of Genesis. Um, when I read that disclaimer on the screen... I didn't know uh, that it had been put in by the studio, but I was I was privy to see shots of Noah well, well before the film came out and before I could see the whole film. I was under NDA, I was under like all sorts of whatevers, and I was kind of, my jaw hit the ground when I first saw the, uh, what I'm going to call the rock monsters, um, the angels encased in rock. And, uh, and I expected there to be a storm of protest over this. Uh, when I saw the film, I guess it was softened from what I thought it might be. But Matt, uh, did you have any views on this in terms of its uh, relevance, uh, connection, or does it even matter, uh, the links to the uh, story in Genesis? Well, I mean, I think I, you know, I can appreciate uh, that certain people are, you know, have concerns in that area and feel, um, you know, that it's, it's maybe it can, it can feel, um, uh, or, or enter an arena that is somewhat controversial for some people. Um, I am not of that opinion personally. I'm, I was super excited to hear that. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Darren Aronofsky's uh, previous films. And so I was really excited to hear that this was something that he'd been wanting to make for a long time. And that, um, you know, he, after the success uh, in particular of black Swan, which I think the three of us uh, talked about as well on the show, but um uh, after the success of that film, he he got the uh, opportunity to go and make this one, and you know I I sort of thought, uh, hmm, you know my first reaction was like that that's such a strange uh, choice uh, that he that that's what he would want to do, and that he would get sort of the green light to go and make that movie. It was sort of hard to imagine what that might mean. Um, 
but uh you know i i can i can honestly say having seen it uh now and my experience of it was so uh different from what i would have ever imagined from the initial sort of trailers that i saw i really felt like what i was watching was a uh almost a science fiction film that was uh interpreted by the filmmaker sort of with a an element of the uh, you know, the very short um, story of Noah uh, as sort of the the spine or the framework for this larger narrative that utilized the names of the characters and, and the, the ideas behind sort of the events within that story, but articulated in a way that was, um, I, I felt like so much um, more than, uh, you know, the story of Noah and the flood. It was. It felt like there was a lot more going on uh, in the larger narrative. Ty, we're going to discuss obviously those those rock monsters that I referred to. But one of the really interesting aspects that I thought that you might like to comment on is the fact that we were seeing in this effectively biblical tale uh, metalwork, um, uh, apparatus, uh, distant kind of landscapes that were all involving plastic and metals and materials far beyond the time period of that we were in and the animals were uh not you know the sort of traditional animals the uh the actual uh countries that from space we saw like the earth it was not in formed in a way that was sort of consistent with current uh, land masses what do you feel about this kind of timelessness aspect that um that placed the film very much not as just a historical biblical drama well, I, I think to me, like, well, on a kind of to make to kind of make a weird uh, nod to what Matt just shared. It was I'd almost say what you're what you're describing was sort of the Mad Max uh, factor. There was a certain kind of apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic kind of vibe that I think, especially in the first maybe 15 minutes, um, was really surprising to me. Um, you know, that kind of exactly what you're describing, you know, the, the remnants of sort of another technology that didn't belong, at least in a biblical story. Um, but for me, I, I think that that uh, much, I guess, much like Matt is describing, I was excited to see a director who had the confidence to sort of take these norms, these, uh, you know, these narratives, biblical narratives, and really <clears throat> kind of embrace them and twist them and make them his own. Um, as far as a visual storytelling kind of um, palette that he created, um, I think it was really kind of transcendent in a way because it allowed for, um, I, well, first of all, I must confess that I was raised in a Lutheran church, but I don't consider myself to be a particular uh, believer at this juncture in my life. I'm very aware of the biblical stories. And I guess looking at it from that perspective, a little bit of distance, I would think that, he kind of reinvigorated a conversation that I would suspect, or at least I would hope that most everyone would want to have, that if you were a believer and you had uh, you know, a high level of faith in the Bible and a high level of faith in Christianity, that you could somehow use this film as a springboard for conversation with, um, with other Christians or with other believers. If you weren't, you could still see it as some kind of jumping off point for a conversation about the nature of man or the nature of ecology or the nature of what I would call like the, the wisdom traditions. Um, and so I found it very cleverly open-ended to invite the greatest number of um, audience members to have a chance to kind of weigh in and participate. Whereas oftentimes I think 
you know, the real biblical films, it's sort of an all or nothing deal, like either you're in or you're out. Um, and much like I think Scorsese attempted to do with The Last Temptation of Christ, he tried to bring the conversation to a place where a lot of uh, people with a lot of perspectives could at least weigh in and have some kind of dialogue. And so I found that aspect of it uh, pretty exciting. Yeah, I would describe myself as a left-wing Christian. Um, I say that because I, in America, I'm appalled at how Christianity has been hijacked in the popular press as being associated with the word right-wing. Um, and uh, so I didn't find it an offensive film. Like, I didn't find it religiously um, provocative or deliberately disrespectful for the purposes of creating an effect. But I did think there were some issues I had with the film of a, on a non-biblical basis. So before we get to the, the plot, uh, sorry, the uh, visual effects, I just want to discuss the plot. So for me personally, just discussing it, again, not in any way uh, upset by any of the religious aspects of it. I found the film uh, died from a dramatic point of view after the actual flood. So obviously we're going to have tons of spoilers in this and that's the case with the show every time. So I say that right now if you're not used to the show. But anyway, at, after the point of the flood, I found there to be a big dramatic um, uh, pause that sort of, as opposed to the third act kind of rushing me to the end with a kind of a satisfied feeling. I almost felt like I was watching a, a prologue or a, or a sort of, a, you know, a, an additional kind of um, extra bit of the film. And I found the fact that one of the, you know, characters uh, being the one that um, uh, is played by Ray Winston, the, uh, the Kane descendant, that he'd actually stowed away to be verging on it on silly um, I understand it's a big arc, but you know there aren't that many people on board, and all the animals are asleep. So how you could hide killing animals um, for what was clearly nine months, based on what happened to uh, you know Emma Watson's uh, pregnancy, just seemed so odd, and it added so little to the story. I thought it was kind of interesting the Russell Crowe uh, character Noah having to come to terms with the idea of killing his own grandchildren. That was unusual. Um, but, but, you know, I knew he wasn't going to kill everybody because I knew that the point of the story was not to be uh, that mankind died in the in the flood. So it wasn't particularly dramatically um, upsetting to me because I kind of knew that it was going to resolve. Uh, did you guys find that after the flood that it kind of petered out? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I think you, you raised a lot of really interesting points there, Mike, that I, I think plot wise... Um, and structurally speaking, like I, I almost wonder watching the movie and, you know, it's sort of, I, I felt similarly in that I think the, the buildup to the actual sort of arrival of the flood, I think was more interesting uh, than the kind of the falling action afterwards where there's sort of that, you know, the, the sense of failure uh, felt by the, the Noah character that he, you know, feels as if he, he hasn't done uh, what he set out to do. And, but then at the same time too, there was a part of me that kept sort of going back to this, uh, the larger film itself and the construction of the narrative 
it's so weird that like, you know, they wind up, I guess they're, they're at sea for essentially nine months, right? Because they're, she's, hmm. she's, uh, she's, you know, fully, um, you know, ready to give birth, uh, to her twins, uh, at the, by the, before they hit land, if I'm not mistaken. And, and, uh, the Ray Winstone character, yeah, he does stow away and is hidden there for so long, but it almost made me feel like then in that sense, the film is not necessarily about the straight up kind of, um, you know, plot driven narrative components, but that it, it really becomes maybe more metaphorical or, uh, like metaphysical almost in a way where the characters and the events that are transpiring in the lives of the characters are really telling, you know, uh, you know, a, a bigger story than just sort of the, the direct, um, events of their lives. Because if that were the case, then, you know, yeah, there, there certainly are, uh, holes in the structure that you could, you know, you could drive a truck through in that respect. So, yeah. Ty, do you think that we had just really interesting stuff before the flood, and that was everything from, uh, you know, Anthony Hopkins' um, characters, uh, and I thought some really brilliant, interesting storytelling ideas and, you know, flashes of uh, uh, dream-type footage that just made a phenomenally interesting cinematic piece pre-flood, followed by none of that pretty much post-flood, so it was kind of duller. Or is it that we just want our characters to win, and when they seem like they win, sitting around saying that they lost and being miserable is like an anticlimactic cinematic narrative plot? Or do you not agree that the last third was a bit dull? Well, you know, it's, I'm glad you brought this up, Mike, because the, to me it was like two films. I mean, I, I would even go so far as to say there was the before-flood film, which... <laughs> I would describe as kind of a dynamic uh, action-adventure film in many ways, although it did have several moments that I think transcended the first. If, if you look at the film in two pieces, there were moments in the first half, like pre-flood, that I think the, 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 the narrative went to a level of kind of extraordinary um, uh, execution and storytelling. Most for me... Um, when when Noah goes out to to basically find I guess wives for his sons and you see this you see this display of the the, the darkest aspects of humanity right and that yeah. that really hit home to me like visually it reminded me of seeing some films of like um, you know uh, Ken Russell and, and and Apocalypse Now it had like an, apop- an apocalyptic kind of insider view of the darkness of humanity that I haven't seen in a major, like in a regular PG-13 movie. When they, when he, when no one gets to that little like uh, group of uh, people that are kind of living in this, you know, makeshift city and the, the guy's trading young girls for a goat or something that gets thrown yeah. over the fence. I mean, that was dark, dark stuff, but it kind of gave credibility to Noah as a noble, you know, follower of this uh, creator. So I I felt like that all had kind of a certain structural integrity. But after the flood, I think you're correct, it became a separate film. And I'm not sure if I had, if if the movie had started with just the flood and I watched the, um, the voyage and the pregnancy and him questioning his faith, I I actually did find it fairly interesting, Um, but only in the context of that kind of envelope that they found themselves in, you know, in his questions about, um, you know, what what makes a person righteous in the eyes of this invisible force when they don't understand the larger plan. I mean, that's kind of cool and interesting, but 
And and I will say that on that note that the the actual footage of the flood there's one shot in particular where you see the ark on the flooded world with this mountain in the foreground that's covered with humans that are getting washed away by waves and I was like man that is Dante that is as crazy an image as I've seen um but when they're just chatting in the ark and you know waiting for things to happen it it, it took a different tempo it was a different pace the concerns were interior instead of exterior. And, you know, the, the questions and problems were very much like philosophical and intellectual. And, and so I see it as the first step being physical and, a, and then post-flood was more interior. And, and I, I'm not sure that, that it all gelled for me personally. I, I, I would say just before we go further, that I'd like to say that I'm excited that Aronofsky has got a pretty good hit on his hand. I want him to have big budgets. I love his films. I'm very interested to see what he's going to do in the future. But at the same time, for me, I, I'm very disjointed on this picture. I, I, I would say that it's important that people who like cinema, who are interested in cinema, see it. But I felt it was fairly flawed and um, really left me conflicted at the end of the day. So I met, a point that I raised a second ago with Ty, which I think is, is kind of relevant in it, to add to his points, is that it was more interesting filmmaking from a technical point of view pre-flood. Like there was lots of interesting things from obviously massive sims and that kind of stuff, but there were sequences of forests growing that was very visually uh, technically interesting. There were amazing um, kind of what seemed to be like matte paintings and but there were also these uh, creatures, character animation. There was psychic visions. There was underneath the water kind of floods, things rising and falling. There was just like a ton of interesting filmmaking techniques and things that weren't obvious. Um, uh, these kind of very dark, barren uh, landscapes that, uh, you know, presumably were, were sort of matte paintings. I just felt like after the flood, with the exception of a couple of shots, you know, with some water from when they're standing on top, it was almost like the film went into low budget mode because it was like, well, we can't really afford to see any animals, so let's have them all asleep. We can't afford to see much water, so let's have them inside. We can't afford to have anything more in the way of those uh, visions and stuff, so let's just uh, stop that. Now, I don't for a second suggesting that's what actually happened, but it just felt like if you told me, well, they ran out of money at like the two-thirds mark and they had to sort of make some changes, I'd be like, oh, okay, well, that kind of makes sense. I don't think that happened, but I just felt like such a less interesting cinematic experience. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, I could see what you're getting at. I guess I, it didn't strike me that way personally watching the film. I felt like certainly the uh, the first um, the first act, uh, all the location photography uh, in Iceland and utilizing Iceland to sort of create this tableau for, you know, what traditionally when you think back on, you know, the... Um, Either whether it's the the Mel Gibson uh, pa Passion of the Christ, right? I think was that yep. one, or the uh, or the you mentioned earlier, Ty, the uh, the Scorsese, you know, on the of the Kizanzakis uh, book, The Last Temptation of Christ, or it, really any of the old sort of biblical epics, even um, you know the great uh, what's what's the the uh, the Ten Commandments, you know, like with uh, Charlton Heston and stuff. You know, all of those films are told usually in you know a very Middle Eastern kind of, you know, desert uh, style, sort of an arid landscape. And I think taking the um, whole environment, both from an art direction point of view and just, uh, you know, sort of a, 
a visual uh, filmmaking perspective to bring it into that uh, that world, that Icelandic desolation that is, you know, sort of almost primordial, right? Mm. It's taking it back to this kind of primordial kind of space where, you know, in the landscape of Iceland, there's all these sort of these fissures and wounds and openings, you know, kind of into the sort of the heart of the the mechanisms of the earth. And I kind of thought it was a great stylistic choice because they also, in terms of the visual effects, decided then to create, uh, you know, a, a situation that doesn't exist in real life where you can see, um, you know, stars and whatnot in the sky, which kind of creates this sense of, you know, heaven and earth being kind of these two interconnected um, forces, right? Where it's like the heavens are literally closer uh, in proximity to the earth in such a fashion that during the daylight you see uh, constellations in the sky. So it sort of makes it an omnipresent kind of um, force. And I think that, uh, you know, the choice, like you mentioned, Mike, to put in when they're walking, uh, they leave home, right? And they're walking sort of uh, across these wastelands and come across this almost what looks like an industrial kind of like an oil, an oil rig, uh, you know, setup or something with these, uh, pipes and machines. I think, you know, that was an, another interesting, um, production design decision that, you know, took for me, the film outside of the realm of the sort of standard fare of a, of a biblical style epic that we're familiar with and brought it into an arena. Like I think I said at the beginning, which to me, it really just felt so much more like a, like a science fiction film that was sort of utilizing the names of these characters in the larger story to tell kind of a, a much more kind of, uh, like a real artist vision. And I think, you know, he even brought back the visual effects. I think overall in this film were really phenomenal. I just want to say that off the, off the top, but I also think that, um, the, uh, the choices that were made to, um, uh, you know, even include some of the, the, sort of these Aronofsky-esque <laughs> sort of signature things. Like you, you mentioned the, the thing with the, the evolutionary story, right? Where he's sort of talking, he, he weaves this narrative about evolution into the larger picture um, in a way that, you know, is not necessarily adherent with, you know, some people's interpretation anyway of biblical writings, but weaves it into the story in such a way through that, almost that time-lapse-y sort of mm. um, movement from the water to the earth. And it looks just like some of the kind of, you know, almost like hip-hop editorial techniques from Requiem for a Dream or something, you know, where he's sort of incorporating that same kind of... Um, I don't know, this, this corny sounding, but that Aronofsky-esque kind of aesthetic and look. And so, I don't know, I, I found all that stuff to be really, it was just so rich and it was fun to watch because it felt like it was really like pushing the envelope in a way in terms of trying to go in a direction visually that was, that was fresh. So, I don't have a problem with the third a third act turn. I, I think I applauded it in World War Z. It was fairly obvious that it had, had a right turn and in World War Z in that third act, it was quite different stylistically, but it just seemed to work more for me. But I'm going to leave that alone because maybe it is is just me. Let's You brought up some really great points. Let's move to the visual effects now. Um, and, and I think we should start because I think it's such an isolated uh, visual. The one you've mentioned, the sort of stop frame animation done by ILM of the uh, sort of the evolution. I thought that worked particularly well, and it was unusual to see a stop frame technique used on the basis of a 
sort of single continuous shot evolution piece. Absolutely. It added an authenticity that made no sense logically and so it felt right. right to me. It just felt great. Uh, it was apparently a, a bitch to do because <laughs> it was like almost every shot <laughs> was bet. a new setup. Uh, you know, if you've got a big sort of uh, planet, you can just zoom down on it. Well, you know, you render that for 120 frames and thanks for playing. You have to keep on changing the planet that you're heading towards. Uh, it becomes a heck of a lot of whatever. Uh, but Ty, I mean, it just, I can't say why, just felt good. Felt like it was, it was visually uh, authentic the way that you can put a camera shake on a shot of a spaceship and it adds authenticity. And yet it makes no sense whatsoever to have time lapse of a... Uh, of a piece of uh, of evolution like that. Yeah, I mean, I guess for me, I I'll be, I, maybe this would be slightly uh, different than you and Matt, but I, I found those sequences a little indulgent and a little bit jarring, only in as much as that they felt slightly long. Now that may sound weird, but one in particular with water, where you saw the water kind of expanding, 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 and you know, I kind of I kind of got it as a viewer, but it seemed to go on. Um, where I thought it was a positive is that it really um, brought that little bit of storytelling back to something we, we as a viewers understand now. Like if you go, go back to the 80s and Koyaniskatsky or you mm. look at the way that um, stop, you know, kind of time lapse is used in commercials or even, um, you know, we, we have an awareness of that. So kinda, it kind of makes the fantastic seem normal i mean there was a nike ad i think neil blumkamp actually directed it a few years ago where there was a shoe that kind of evolved on a street through a kind of oh, time yeah. lapse uh, sequence um and so that 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 artifact of of cinematic technology has become kind of an aff affirming of nature which i find that very interesting so i'm not i'm not commenting I thought it was brilliant to to in, interject it uh, into the into the film, but it, to me it was a little jarring. It felt like okay, I get it, and you know, and and it didn't seem to have the level of integration that so much of the larger film had for me. Um, so, what did you think about the effects in terms of the imagery that you're seeing in on the screen, like? if we get away from the possible indulgence of the duration, it, it felt to me well executed. Yeah, yeah, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm not commenting on the tech. The, 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 the execution was brilliant. I just felt that it seemed, I think Matt said it a minute ago, like for him maybe it's a little more um, of a positive, but it seemed like an Aronofsky kind of, you know, like, uh, uh, and again, I, I'm not... I don't want to be, I'm very much on the fence, quite frankly, with this picture, because by even calling out something as problematic, I'm not suggesting that it shouldn't be there. I mean, it's very rarely that I have this reaction to a film where I want to say, well, this didn't really work for me, but I wouldn't want it to be gone. You know what I'm saying? And I, I think that's <laughs> yeah. part of the strength of this presentation there's no one that i wouldn't recommend this film to but at the same times i would be very excited to say with some reservations i would like to discuss x y and z with you <laughs> because that's what partly made it interesting 
So, so it's yeah. sort of like I, w- I was kind of shocked or jarred or it's like if you go to a really good restaurant and you, they serve you a sauce or something and you've not had it before. So you kind of go, well, this is all familiar. I know what beef is, but this sauce, I don't know. I mean, like I want to ask you, well, what did you think of that sauce? You know, what, what couldn't we couldn't we level that same discussion at the growing uh, from uh, a seed? of this sort of Eden-esque environment that provides the wood for the ark, because that was a very deliberate visual effect. It was a, in another film, you'd almost say it was uh, obvious. It was very deliberate. It was just like visual effects sequence awe. And yet in this film, it's cloaked in, we're in an age of miracles. And so I'm going to give you some, and they're going to be good ones. And they're going to be rendered really well. And we're not going to hide them. We're not going to pretend this is, this is not uh, visual effects that is, you know, hidden in the sense that it's not obvious. This is not seamless. This is like, have a look at this visual effects sequence because it's going to knock your socks off as we grow this forest around these guys. Well, yeah, and I think, and I think too, you know, if you look at the body of work of the filmmaker, I think, you know, every film he's made on some level, and, you know, oftentimes they're, you know, just so uh, abusive to the audience in a way in terms of the, the endurance uh, component of the film. But I think he's also always kind of dealing with transformation or transcendence in some way, you know, be it, you know, through uh, physical uh, transcendence or, you know, a, a artistic, you know, transcendence or, or what have you, or spiritual transcendence. And I think, you know, there's a transformation and a, and a, and a, that takes place in this film uh, or many transformations. And, you know, that's just, I think that's another one of them, you know, the sort of the sprouting up of the, of the wood and the forest that creates both the, the wood for the arc itself, but also creates this kind of, you know, a protective barrier in a way too that shields the you know the family from you know the the Tubal Cain uh, tribe at least for a time anyway. And so, yeah, I think it's um, I think that it's utilized in that capacity from from my perspective to great you know literally to great effect. Like I think it's the the effects in that in that instance I think are really incredibly well executed. But I also think you're getting. Uh, they're, they're, they're fitting and filling uh, a primary component of the larger narrative or the larger theme as well. Because you could argue that in an almost, uh, to use an analogy now, modernist, postmodernist sense, we've entered a post-effects world where there was a stage where we weren't trying to do visual effects and they would either be obvious or we said, no, 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 no. We want them to not be obvious. We want them just to be part of the narrative of the storytelling. We want it just to serve the story and that's all we want it to do. We want it to be hidden and the best effects we can do, you won't even notice has been done. And now we've got to a point where we go, well, we, we know we can do that. We know we can do effects you can't see. But I'm going to just give you some effects you can see and I'm not going to apologize about it because quite frankly, it's a spectacle for a reason and I choose it because I can choose as easily to do visual effects that are not a spectacle. In other words, I'm no longer doing it because I can. I'm no longer doing it but trying to hide it and apologize and not making an effects film. Because this is, there are some obvious, in, in a, like five years ago, what I would say gratuitous effects sequences that you could effectively cut out and it wouldn't stop the story from flowing. Um, there, there are others that aren't, of course, but but they're not gratuitous. They are magical, interesting, visually engaging pieces of filmmaking that just seem to be very unapologetic and not hidden. It's like, we're going to give it to you right now and we can do as much as or little of this as we want. We just choose to do this amount because we think it's creatively valid. 
Well, yeah, and I think there's a there's an exciting opportunity too with visual effects that I was talking to my students actually in one of my classes about this the other day. We were talking about, um, you know, we were talking about video art, right, as sort of an art form, and we were talking about how there's, you know, the kind of um, I think Ty, you maybe you and I were talking about this too at one point, uh, maybe earlier in that morning, which maybe spurned the conversation with some of the students. But we were talking about that whole thing of like glitch art. You know, and that idea that like there's this exploration of like in a lot of video art, this kind of like the like taking the digital and trying to play with it in a way to create this almost kind of uh, remix feedback kind of analog feel or like, you know, looking for the mistakes, the glitches. But I also think there's an interesting opportunity that is rarely seized um, to take, you know, high-end computer animation and computer graphics um, and really uh, express and create, you know, beautiful, great art within, or I'd even be excited to see it outside of the context of a cinematic narrative. And I think maybe what you're sort of getting at there, Mike, if I'm, if I'm not reading too much into what you're saying is that, you know, here's an example of a, of a huge effects movie, right? But that's utilizing effects in a way that is, kind of not always but in some ways uh outside of the realm in which we normally experience those large scale bombastic effects and using them stylistically and artistically uh in a fashion that is uh at least maybe somewhat uh different than what we're accustomed to seeing is that fair yeah i just feel like it's no longer saying can we do this it's no longer saying we're going to do it, but we're going to hide it because we know that you're going to have a negative reaction to something that's effective rather than real. We're saying, you know what, we're going to do you something that's really visually interesting because we're so over whether it is or isn't visual effects. We just want to do something that's interesting and just so happens that it's interesting with visual effects. But could, if we were doing this some other way, it'd be, you know, interesting some other way. I actually had a, <clears throat> I had a thought and in, in the theater, which might actually uh, inform this conversation. I swear, now I'd be really curious to hear both of, yours, both of your views on this. I swear that those watchers, those stone encased angels were, were being executed from a visual effects standpoint in such a manner as to make them seem like Ray Harryhausen effects. Like, they looked oftentimes to me as though they had a kind of strange shuddering effect, as though mm -hmm. they were being done with stop motion. Um, and yeah, the, totally. the way that they were connected or not connected, depending how you looked at it, the various aspects or pieces of their physicality, the way that those were constructed and maneuvered, it felt very much like a wire, like a, an old school kind of, um, um, you know... Um, uh, animation kind of uh, like a maquette, that's yeah, a maquette or, or, or an articulated um, wire uh, interior that armature, uh, yeah, an armature that didn't really seem to be very sophisticated. <laughs> and I kept looking at him thinking, well, the, the shadows are great, the specular highlights are great, the compositing is great, and yet they seem so purposefully artificial to me that I, if it was a a lesser film like if, if i had seen those guys walking around in like a, a low budget horror film i would have said they were awful but in the context <laughs> of this film um 
they seem kind of extraordinary almost like if you look at abstract expressionist painting i mean you have to kind of say well this is something that it looks like paint splattered but the guy who's doing this is very knowledgeable he's trying to present a totality and i know that it was well at least i don't know for a fact but my suspicion is it was purposeful because once the big um I, I would call this the lord of the ring sequence you know i had the i had the mad back sequence and i had the lord of the ring sequences once the humans are <laughs> rushing the ark and fighting you know with these big rock watcher angel dudes suddenly the compositing looked very you know naturalistic the animation became more naturalistic this the camera placement became much more in that kind of lord of the rings aesthetic it seemed more realistic because you had to take the world of like normal physics and humanity and, and allow it to coexist with these insane rock guys. Um, so I sense that it, I, I sense that maybe the director Aronofsky was, was playing with us a bit because he was holding off with the visual effects until the miracles, like you had mentioned, Mike. And I think that because these other things seem kind of, I don't know, kind of crazy and clunky and weird and esoteric, by the time the flood came, it was like now, or not the flood rather, but the um, the garden growing, for example, the miracle. That was like now we'll show you what it, what perfection looks like. And I don't know what either you guys think about that, but uh, that was my take on it. Well, I, I went to ILM and spent a day there talking to the guys about the film. So it was very much, I can tell you, a, a deliberate decision that they were broken, that they were almost had like a a, a palsy, a, a kind of a a. Um, so they were they were not as they should be um that they'd been injured by the fall or they were it wasn't just that they were inside the um the the rock it was more that they were sort of uh unable to exist properly in this environment and so i felt they became more harmonious with their environment when they went back to having a purpose and were in sync with noah and i felt that was exactly the visual trick that makes no logical sense but works in the same way the stop frame animation is a visual trick that makes no logical sense but works. So I think he did it very deliberately and they became more in tune when they had a purpose and were no longer enslaved and were no longer um, marginalized and were, you know, returning to a sort of a place of doing the creator's kind of work. So I, I, I totally agree with you and I think it was a very deliberate choice. It was a brave one. And I, I got to agree with you, like it was clunky there at, at one stage, but I don't think it was anything but uh, deliberate um, breaking in the same way that I would say, why was there all these kind of metal and uh, plastic and rubber in parts of the film? But when they actually making the arc, we didn't see a lot of that. There was chain and metalwork, um, but we didn't, it didn't go too heavily into sort of the, like the arc wasn't built with post-industrial materials. Um, right. And then there was also that there was a little, um, uh, I don't remember precisely when it occurs in the film, but there was this storytelling moment where they went to this little vignette and you kind of saw man fighting man through history and it went all the way through to God. Oh, yeah. You saw yeah, that was Yeah, absolutely. It was, uh, again, these like really brave decisions, which is why, you know, having a filmmaker like this, making films is a is a healthy thing for a society it's like you want him to make films that are interesting and that cause these discussions i just don't think personally it's as successful as black swan was for me i found black swan to be uh amazingly engaging and also breathtakingly sort of daring in some of its choices 
I would absolutely concur 100% with that statement. I think for me, Black Swan and, the, and even The Wrestler, you know, like are so strong as yeah, yeah. films, as narratives, as, as explorations of some of these larger themes that I think he's really interested in. But at the same time, I think what you're saying too, Mike, I, I would also want to bolster that case too. I think it's so exciting to see a filmmaker like Darren Aronofsky be able to take command of the kinds of resources required to make a film like this. Um, it does have its problems, but I still, yeah, and I think you said this too, Ty, like I think it's just so great to have, just to have that in the world, you know? I mean, it's, it's really a wonder, a wonderful thing. Yeah, and I, I'll just chime in as well. Like, I think Black Swan, you know, to me was one of the best films of the last decade. Yeah. This this picture, I think, was it, it was. It, I, I don't want to go on a limb or anything like that, but it seemed like a half step to somewhere I'd like to see this director get to. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. So let's discuss the visual effects from ILM's point of view. Uh, ben Snow was the lead visual effects supervisor. Uh, um, you know, I make no bones. I just, I just have to say that Ben Snow. I've worked with him a number of times in, on different projects over the years, including probably the last big project I worked with him on was King Kong and at Weta. And I just think he is the one of the nicest guys I was just I've, ever, say exactly I've ever worked with. I mean, he is just, he is so positive, so upbeat. He is yeah. coming to work with and working, you know, under him, uh, with him as the supervisor, like coming to work and having, knowing that he was going to be the guy coming by to look at whatever you were doing was just such a pleasure. Like he's, he always had a way of, um, putting a, a real positive uh, uh, vibe in the within injecting that into the team. You know, I mean, I think he's just a great, great supervisor, a great eye, obviously too, but also just a super nice uh, person. You can argue about the, uh, you know, whether this or that supervisor is more technical or less technical. And certainly Ben's very technical. Um, Absolutely. But at the end of the day, you know, if you said to me, you have to sit down with a visual effects supervisor and talk to them for two hours, I don't think there's any other supervisor on my list I would look forward to more than sitting <laughs> down and talking to Ben for two hours. Uh, yeah, now, of course, he's really an Australian, cool. and that would account for a large part of this. But uh, Oh, yeah, good, good he, point. <laughs> he uh, just is a heck of a nice guy. But let's take nothing away from him at a talent level. Like this was oh, a absolutely. This was a big film. It's a good budget, but it's not a mega budget. It's not a two hundred million dollar budget. We're like at a hundred and thirty kind of number. So it wasn't like they could just throw everything they possibly had. This wasn't like Transformers Four budget. I don't know what that is, but I imagine it's bigger. Uh, but it is ILM doing a, a cracking job at stuff. Um, I want to just discuss though, if we can, um, something that I covered for a piece I did for Wired, which is uh, also on on FX Guide, which is the 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 set. So before we get to the visual effects, the special effects of what happened for the flood sequence, because I had a really interesting time talking to Ben, and then Ben said, "Oh, you've got to go and talk to Bert, the visual, the supervisor, the special effects supervisor, about the work he did, because uh, the the well, I take nothing away from Ben, who's just unbelievably, uh, you know, good at, at his job. The the amount of work done in a practical sense on the set." to give them something to work with was unbelievable. Um, this was probably one of the largest water uh, rain sequences that we've ever seen done in film. As an exterior, uh, it was astonishing. And the, the amount of um, effort that went into it, just to give you an idea, if you haven't seen the piece I did on Wired, just for those people listening, 
uh, imagine you've got a large area at a park in New York that you're going to set up as the, the set. Well, they, they completely clear this area that's already cleared of trees, but they clear it down so that they can lay um, a material so that the whole thing won't turn to a mud bath while they're filming. So they lay down this sort of stuff that's going to cause the water to run off. Then they re-put back all the topsoil over the entire set, which is a couple of football fields. And they make sure that the pitch of the entire set, which is a couple of football fields, is a couple of degrees so that it'll run off properly. They then build vast drainage systems. And they then put in huge piping systems for the water and then build big, heavy-duty roads around it because they have to get these massive cranes in to lift up the rigs that'll hold both the lights and the water. And the reason for all of this is that, um, as uh, <clears throat> Bert Dalton, who, by the way, is you know won Oscars for his work, said, you, the old adage in filming is that you light snow from the front and you light rain from the back. And so they very quickly told the filmmakers, look, you can't have this day scene shot in the day. You're going to have to shoot night for day. It's the only way we can control backlighting the rain. And the only way that we can do that is to have these huge lights, these huge water tower rigs, and then we'll have an iPad and we'll walk around and we'll be able to turn off any sprinkler on and off or change it from being a spray to a, a heavy, what's called um, goose drowner. And so with that in mind, the filmmaker says, okay, the shot's over here from the left. They could say, okay, well, we don't want to see past this into actual New York or whatever is beyond it. So I'll put the back ones on kind of spray. That'll white out rain-wise at the back. And then I'll turn on these huge ones at the front. We'll dump 5,000 gallons a minute on the set. But don't worry, nothing will get bogged down because all the cranes and all the gear are on these roads we've built. All the pipes are buried. All the electrics is safe. And all the water will run off. So when you go for the next take, uh, you'll be able to go again. And then they did this into going into winter over like uh, several weeks in New York. And uh, the more I spoke to him about this, the more I was just gobsmacked by the, the sheer scale and size of this piece. And like, I know I shouldn't be this impressed by my sprinklers, but aren't you guys like with me in that this is just a, a big undertaking? Absolutely. I mean, I think to have that that level of um, effort and to endeavor to tell a story. I mean, you know, you, you mentioned at the beginning, you said it was like, you know, the most, uh, you know, water uh, effects, you know, practical effects in any movie. Well, it as it should be, right? I mean, you know, you, yeah. you look at the, the scope and the technical um, achievements of just the, you know, set building and the practical effects teams in order to create and generate that level of realism within the context of a given scene, you know, and it makes me think of, as you were describing it, I was thinking about, oh yeah, I remember watching some of those really massive behind the scenes, um, uh, things of another, you know, big water epic of, uh, of Titanic, right. Where it was like a similar kind of, um, although it wasn't rain, but that kind of the massive physical, um, uh, sets and uh, effort that was put forward to be able to, you know, capture the environment in the same way. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, unless you ever have had the opportunity to go on a really big film set like that, where they're, you know, they've got all the, uh, the biggest toys you could ever possibly imagine playing with and seeing how much effort and work goes into that kind of setup. I mean, you really just can't, you almost can't even imagine it until you've seen it done, you know? Yeah. I mean, uh, Ty, you might want to talk about the design of the arc because that whole environment made sense to me when I thought about it, but it caught me a little off guard when I first saw it. Though I just will point out for those listening that, that the front part of the arc was actually built there. 
So there was a practical set that was the first, I'm going to say 20%, maybe 25% of the arc. The rest of it was digitally added. And of course, all the major water that smashes in and, and, and stuff is all digital, um, as was. But there still was uh, a lot of crowd running at it, and there still was you know, this physical thing. But just from a design point of view and stuff, I guess, what, what did you think of the actual arc and that, that sort of set that is the focus of the, uh, the middle of the film? Well, you know, it's interesting because I, I, I don't know how much you, you, there's sometimes we share things. I don't know how much it really matters one way or the other. But I actually had gotten a call to, um, uh, to, to do some designs on the arc before the picture was moving forward. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, the main reason was is because uh, the reason I was tapped originally was because uh, the director wanted to investigate something that was new, something that was different. And it uh, so my introduction to the project was through an art director, and I spoke briefly with the production designer. But I, I think that what I felt was that they carried that forward. Um, I was, you know, I think at the time I was uh, busily working on something else, but I, I like the idea that what they were doing was um, in service once again to this to this larger story. I mean, it didn't it didn't feel like it felt. As much as it was just basically like a giant candy bar, I mean, it was a big cube, it, it seemed like that was very in sync with what you could build. And it seemed like you could kind of make that work. It didn't. It felt like a chamber that was sealed that could kind of withstand all the waves. I, I would quarrel with the one piece that I expected to see, which I really didn't see until the very end of the uh, the end of the picture when um, you know um, Noah's fighting the the dude and the, the kind of the waves of the water suddenly throws him crap. Oh, I guess it wasn't the waves; it was actually impacting on you know on land. Uh, I yeah. expected to see more like chaos on the interior of the because um, that would have been the whole two thousand one thing. You know, you set up some gimbal system and everything on the interior is all you know swaying and weird on the interior but but I, I kind of felt like it had a legitimacy that i respected you know it, it both in the be both as a in the beginning when or at the first half of the film when they were attacking it seemed like a fortress um and then it had a certain functionality i don't know how scientifically correct it was but i did feel like it 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 was this fortress against the flood and then even on the water it seemed like they were stuck there it wasn't a happy place to be with all those uh, you know animals sleeping and l limited you know light and it, it was very claustrophobic it's almost like he moved into a cave so once again i think it was very interesting and i, I think thoughtful um you know design that that was different than that um you know traditional uh, Noah, the Ark kind of story. I, I read a thing that, that I guess uh, Aronofsky told uh, Russell Crowe that he wouldn't have to be uh, photographed wearing sandals and he wasn't going to be standing on the bow of the Ark with you know, like giraffes heads. And certainly this, <laughs> <laughs> certainly this didn't allow for that. You know what I mean? It seemed like apocalyptic yeah. and, 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 and original as much as it was understandable. So I thought it was awesome actually that piece. it was it was fairly accurate to what would be required if you agree that you don't have to steer the ark anywhere it just has to float it doesn't have to sail it doesn't have to you know go down a river it doesn't need any kind of rudderary kind of system because it's just going to sit there as a giant raft and and the second thing is 
they, they built stuff into it for that. So it actually dug down underneath and there was a lot of ballast. So at the bottom of the design, and you see it at a couple of frames in the film, I was looking for it, there's a huge section of rocks at the bottom that was to act as the bottom ballast. So as I understand it from the ILM Sims guys, it was a valid sim in that they didn't have to fake it out. It wouldn't, it wasn't sitting up ridiculously high. The ballast and everything else uh, was designed and, and dug into the location for real in that front sort of 20% I mentioned and, and extended digitally. So that was valid. I think well, it that's was... another thing that's just so rad that like, you know, they're gonna, like, that's just such a cool uh, part of that story is that, you know, in the, in the ILM effects team is going to not just build, you know, the, the aesthetic of the boat itself and run a sim, but they're going to, they're going to work out the physics of the whole thing and put the ballast into the, you know, the craft for the simulation. And like, I mean, it's just so rad that it like takes on that level of, um, you know, really just inherent complexity and realism where it's like, you know, you're, you're having to address and solve really real world problems for the processing of generating and creating, you know, the most realistic um, rendered effect as well. So it's just so cool. What did you think of the animals? Cause that's, that's, you know, 14,000, whatever animals that are coming on the boat. There's three, there's the, the birds and sort of insecty bits. There's the, the snake bit, um, which is a good gag, I think. And then there's the, the animals. Um, I think, you know, from a plot point of view, I felt a little bit like, couldn't we see a bit more of the animals? But I guess the story wasn't about the animals. I Yeah, I kind of thought it was sort of a, you know, it's, it was, it's both like ridiculous, but also that, you know, they all go to sleep with the sort of waving of the smoke or whatever. But at the same time too, it's, it's genius because it solves that problem. And, and it really, and I think you're right. It's not about, that's not really the thrust of the story that they wanted to tell with this film. But I also thought the choice of animals was really great in that it's, you know, they're sort of these, you know, somewhat recognizable, you know, um, you know, kind of like a tarsier or like a, you know, an emu or, a you know, it's like they're semi-recognizable, but at the same time, too, they're almost like, again, there's a flavor of a kind of a, a primordial um, aspect of these these mammalian creatures as they come on board, like the snakes and the birds and the insects, like they're, they're really forgiving. But I think when the mammals come on board, you know, there's a, there's an instant kind of, um, I think human reaction where you sort of try to read, Oh, what is that one? And what is that? And I, I felt like none of them were really directly, uh, legible as you know a recognizable animal and i kind of thought that was a cool stylistic choice too and and i would imagine it gave for a really fun or interesting opportunity for the um you know the modelers and the the creature uh team or whatever to sort of come up with these hybridized sort of um you know prehistoric designs they almost look more like um i don't know like uh you know those uh like the i don't know if you've ever seen any of those like um uh, you know, the voyage of the beagle, you know, like yeah. the drawings that they would do like on Galapagos where it's like these, these like crazy uh, versions of like, or, or a really old drawing of like a rhinoceros or something where it's like, it kind of looks like a rhinoceros, but it's like clearly some artist's interpretation of what they remember a rhinoceros to look like. And I think that that was really a pretty neat thing to do um, creatively. And I think worked really well. Yeah, I thought it worked really well. Um, I I thought that it was good to not become like the two giraffe thing for me would have erred on the side of comical because it's such yeah. a cliche. So I right. get why they kind of did that. 
Um, what's kind of interesting that, so just before we get off the ark for a second, I just wanted to, I flashed memory that in the actual Bible, it gives the dimensions of the ark. It's um, 300 cubits by a breadth of 50 cubits by a height of 30 cubits. In so far as I read the King James Bible, that's what it is in that version of the Bible. And what's you can, a cubit? It's, thank you. I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> uh, so 300 cubits works out to be about 143 meters long. Uh, okay. If you use a uh, on the internet, I have no now. I'm I'm now going off on <laughs> on <laughs> madman stuff. But yeah, if you use convertme.com, apparently that's how many um, cubits <laughs> are to the. Uh, sorry, I, I can't base that in any kind of uh, fact. But there yeah, you go. Yeah. But if that is the sort of like apparently the way it is, um, I certainly I can say that uh, the uh, the idea of the box is implied in that definition of the ark, and I've heard that. Uh, I didn't have this firsthand, this is secondhand information, but I heard that that's what Aronofsky did. He basically said, well, let's build it based on this uh, ratio of like 300 to 50 to 30 because, you know, that's kind of what's described. And it's a box. It's not described as, you know, like a make a yacht that's, you know, awesome and wonderful and looks pretty and, and stuff. Um, so, and, and, and I think the animals going to sleep is a huge plot win for just not a lot of other problems, especially as the Ark was going to be at sea for so long in this film. Um, but it doesn't explain a bunch of other stuff, right? It doesn't explain how they don't all die of starvation or, you know, like, uh, I mean, they're all asleep, but, you know. Yeah, I think for me that, I think one of the powers of the film is it's sort of a poem. I mean, it's sort of a meditation on a narrative that's been around for a long time. I don't know that Aronofsky really wanted to inform the viewers about a, a reality, right? He wasn't saying that these things were necessarily grounded in what we today understand as reality. I mean, the age of Noah, the age of, you know, what his father would have had to have been like 900 years or something. I think what he was doing was looking at the narrative um, arc and the through line. And in this case, and we haven't really discussed this much, but I find it very interesting. He was really trying to talk about ecology and man's responsibility for uh -huh. the earth, man's responsibility for nature. And if, for me, that came through loud and clear. In fact, as much violence as I've seen in uh, films and cinema over the course of my lifetime, when that crazy stowaway guy, you know, the the yeah. leader, the, the cane, right, or whatever his name was, when yeah. he ate the head of that bird, I think it was, I don't even know if it was a bird or a squirrel, but when he's talking to that kid and suddenly he's munching on, yeah. like, sleeping animals, I, I felt that was really powerful. And I think that... Um, in a strange way that you can't talk about this film without looking at its um, ecological components, both with terms of water's importance, with the growth of trees' importance, with uh, the ideas of animal and human relationships being important, and man as a custodian of that reality. And so, and even the evolutionary story that which kind of was presented as the, you know, the story of um, Genesis, these things are all interconnected and man holds a certain amount of responsibility for his actions. And I, and I, however one views that, I thought it was great to see it front and center in a, in a, in a, in a big action adventure, as Matt would say, science fiction picture. Okay. Well, let's just, just in this last bit, focus in right on the visual effects. Um, 
And I'm going to just ask each of you in a second to tell me what you liked and disliked for visual effects. I will say, I'll go first because give you guys a chance to think. <clears throat> I did think that the water sequence of the water hitting the arc and the water coming up through the, the sort of uh, blowholes, as it were, in the ground. Uh, and there was a ravine that cracks, causing people to fall into it. Um, all of that to me was just really big. It was dark. It was, it was just big, impressive visual effects. And I, and I felt like it was, uh, suitably cinematically interesting and appropriate to the film at that point. And I needed something big because if I'm going to flood the planet, um, I was curious about some of the choices, like going out and seeing the storm covering every part of the earth. I mean, I, I liked those shots, but they were like kind of harder to sell. But the, uh, for an, for a flood to happen and me to believe that there's a flood, it just happened in a kind of realistic way. So as to not think that the ark would be destroyed by a kind of tsunami wave coming down and that would roll it and stuff. So I thought that was well executed, well done, really believable and, uh, and terrific. I will say on the negative, there was a shot and I'm trying to remember which one it was. It was a two shot of two characters. And I remember at the time kind of exclaiming to myself that that was like a really uh, actually, I know what the shot was now. I remember it clearly. They're walking towards the mountain of uh, his father and they're on this uh, dirt sand. And and from my point of view, the lighting on the characters was more contrasty. There's a two shot, but there's also a wider shot. And they, they had shadows and they were placed on the ground, but the, the rock guy beside them seemed to be, and the ground itself seemed to be lit with different lighting. They were just too perky, too bright, too contrasty. It was, it was remarkably un-ILM-ish in that ILM normally nails it when it comes to just the simple getting the grade right of putting something in. Now, I know it was a hard shot in the sense that there was this gray ground. And so you might have taken an HDR in that environment and it might have even read that that's what they should be. It could be, for all I know, that everything else in the shot was real apart from the rock guy. But if that was the case and the rock guy was wrong, <laughs> I think it was the other way around. I think that they were comped into that environment incorrectly. And it, it stood out to me as a dramatic comp error in a film that otherwise seemed very uh, visually effects uh, even. Um, what about you, Ty? What, anything, did you, those shots resonate with you at all? Well, I, I know the shot you're talking about, and I was kind of surprised by it. It seemed a little out of the context. I, I guess for the, the, pieces, the, the piece that I went away with and I actually was very haunted by, which was, uh, which again, going back to we were kind of talking about the picture in the pre-flood, uh, pre post-flood uh, aspect, was um, the, um, the, the drowning of the humans on this giant rock where the ark was uh floating in the distance i i the, the dante's inferno show. yeah it had a certain resonance to it that uh, i was looking at the people kind of trying to cling to that rock and the scale of the rock and the scale of the action and the the multiple uh people and and i was looking for like some you know kind of ragdoll uh animation and stuff but they they seem to really be struggling to get out of this flood and to to have a visual effect which clearly was synthetic and at that moment to really stare at it and i think i'm pretty sure that i came out with my goggles of visual effects um assessment that was a pretty impressive shot with water simulation uh you know human action synthetic humans just really got an emotional response from me. Um, 
I, I think that that was one of those things where I, it was really just kind of, it was a culminating uh, visual effect. The rest of the shots, the rest of the work was brilliant. I did see a couple here and there, but man, it was quality work. And um, I, it, again, it's like if you, that's why I would say as many issues as I'd like to discuss with people that are um, going to see this picture about all the things we talked about tonight. Um, I think it's a picture that every film lover should see. If you like film, you should see this picture. Matt? Yeah, I mean, I think the shot Ty mentions is a is a great one. I mean, it was really arresting and, and cutting back and forth between cutting from that shot to the shot inside of them hearing the screams too really uh, gave it another kind of level of oomph to it. Um, but I think, you know, if I were to look at the movie, I think there really were um, – there's four primary things that really stuck out to me. Probably my favorite shot, uh, at least that I remember, is I believe it's kind of a helicopter-ish sort of shot from above looking down. And it's when the watcher is sort of telling the story of how they became in, ensconced in uh, in stone. And you sort of see the watcher like, you know, fallen and sort of being covered in this uh, lava that hardens. And, so, and I thought there was just something about that shot that was so... Um, you know, it's pretty out there, right? But it was so dynamic, and uh, the simulation of the uh, the the lava, you know, uh, moving up the the figure and then hardening and stuff, I thought was so cool. And then the way in which they kind of broke from that frozen position to be these kind of you know crippled, kind of wounded, damaged versions of them for, of their former selves. There was that shot um, that I really liked, and then I thought the um, the initial. Um, I don't think it was the big like reveal where all the water comes towards the arc but there's a shot i it, it might be the same shot i don't remember exactly or maybe one shot prior where you see all the water coming in and it's actually coming in with such dramatic force that it's collapsing huge um areas of um foliage and i thought that that was really successful seeing the way in which the trees were being forced, um, you know, to break and bend with the the sort of the concussive force of that much water, you know, sort of coming in and, and uh, pushing it all downward, I thought was really great. And then I also really did the thing I mentioned earlier, the other thing that I really liked, which was a just such a subtle uh, kind of effect that if you weren't really paying attention, I think you could almost not notice it which was the sky replacements. I thought they did some amazing, you know, comp and, and a lot of great roto work um, to get, you know, those sky replacements where you had that, um, I think as I was mentioning at the very beginning, that idea of the seeing those sort of constellations and sort of the heavens in the daytime sky, I thought was another thing that was just so, um, you know, maybe not the most complicated effect, I wouldn't think, but one that um, I think really did a lot to, add um, just another layer to the overall kind of world building that was going on um, throughout the overall production. Well, the only other thing I'd like to add to that is I did, I did like the casting in this film. Um, and uh, it was nice to see, you know, uh, Russell Crowe has done some films I've liked a lot. It's done some that I haven't liked, but I, I, I thought, <laughs> you know, Anthony Hopkins and Emma Watson, a lot of people in this film I, I really liked. So, <clears throat> I uh, yeah I, I enjoyed the film. I think that it is not, as I said, as successful as Black Swan, but I would agree with you that um, we want to see films like this made, and it's great that the film has been successful enough that it's going to give uh, momentum to making more films along this line. Certainly not an easy subject, and it could have been cliched at, at about fifty different places that would have made it 
less than uh, engaging and much more sort of, um, you know, well, silly really. Uh, so yeah, it was. It's a difficult thing to to crack, but I do think that um, away from any religious connotations, away from anything else, um, the third act kind of let it down a little uh, for me, and certainly I didn't enjoy it as much as uh, maybe some other films. But I think that uh, the ILM team did a superb job, and I think we're all in agreement that um, that uh, we want to see more films like this in the future. So, guys, um, thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, starting with you, Ty. Do you want to just uh, give a link if people want to connect up and uh, follow you or uh, see where you are on uh, any of the uh, social media sites? Yeah, I think that anybody should feel comfortable connecting with me on Facebook. I actually have a really lively conversation most every day going on with both filmmakers and, and technologists. Or you can just uh, shoot me an email at tyrubin at alieninsect.com. And uh, I certainly didn't know that you'd been uh, tapped to look at the arc at one point, but it's uh, really interesting to hear that discussion. And thanks so much for taking time to talk to us. And Matt, what about you? Uh, you can always find me on the, the Twitters. I'm at Matt Wallin, W-A-L-L-I-N. And, uh, or my website is um, mattwallin.com for all things Matt Wallin. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I want to thank you guys uh, for listening to the show. We have some really good stuff coming up uh, in future episodes. In particular, we're going to look at uh, Captain America, uh, a very interesting um, film, I think, and uh, certainly a great uh, sort of popcorn tentpole uh, summer-esque kind of film. So that's all coming up and a bunch of other stuff as we move uh, later in the year. I want to thank also in particular our uh, team behind the scenes because uh, we have a great team. Um, in fact, Matt, we uh, over the years now, because you've been obviously with us um, longer than Ty, we've really enjoyed the support that we've gotten in the show from the team behind the scenes, haven't we? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I think all the guys uh, on your end and uh, Ian, for sure, of course, and uh, and uh, Todd Skolton, who uh, I met a couple of years ago with you out at Seagraph in L.A., mm -hmm. I think, and, uh, and all his efforts to put together... Um, kind of all the sort of press materials and background information that kind of helps us do all the kind of, you know, heavy, uh, they do all the heavy, heavy lifting for all the sort of research components that we sometimes bring up on the show. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just a great, uh, a great team across the board, I think. Yeah. That being said, occasionally uh, somebody screws up and certainly I did screw up uh, on our <laughs> agents of shield one. I um, miscredited uh, some of the visual effects work that was done on that. And some of you wrote uh, emails about that and some of you wrote uh, some comments pointing out my error. That was absolutely true. Somebody said I should do something about it. Just to let you know, within um, an hour of me discovering that uh, we'd misquoted that, we'd spoken to the house concern. And in fact, we're going to do a uh, an in-depth feature on their work at FX Guide. So uh, my apologies to that. We do try and get these things right. And certainly that wasn't the fault of anyone but me. Uh, on that particular uh, occasion. But I will also say that on some, not by any way to justify it because it's inexcusable to get a credit wrong, but on some of the, the shows we discuss, uh, we don't have the benefit of having spent time with the uh, visual effects teams or the filmmakers. So it's it's much more difficult to assess exactly what shots were what. So it's just the ebb and flow. On this particular film, we can tell you with great Certainly because we spent a lot of time with the filmmakers on other shows like uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And that was a particular example. We were much more going off uh, our, our viewing of it as an audience member. But that being can said, I, yeah. Oh, can I just add one little thing to that? That um, every once in a while on, on the FX Guide site when the, the, um, the podcasts go up, uh, a little discussion might start up. And just I, I just wanted to throw this out there just from my perspective, like, 
I love it. I love it when the conversation gets started and we start talking about, you know, the ins and outs of a given shot or, you know, a technique that might have been used and stuff. And so I think it's so much fun if, um, you know, people ever have stuff they want to throw into those forums. Like, I think it's a lot of fun to uh, engage in a conversation, uh, you know, with anybody that's listening who wants to, you know, talk about it more. Because, I mean, you know, I know, you know, from talking to you guys, I mean, we talk about this stuff all the time about movies, about visual effects, about what, ha you know, anything related to the field. And so it's so much fun, uh, I think, when that conversation gets started with um, the community, too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we totally exist for the community. And, uh, you know, that's the only reason we do it. So yeah, you guys are the reason that we're here. Anyway, I want to thank everyone uh, so much for being with us. Um, as I said, we'll catch you uh, coming up. And, uh, and if you have any um, uh, aspects, good or bad, as I say, we do like to hear from you. And we certainly like to hear from you if we've made any mistakes. But yeah, please uh, um, feel free to email us or email me. I'm Mike Seymour on Twitter. And of course, you'll find me at fxguide.com. Until next time, I'm Mike Seymour. See you. any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com.